So, Greg. So, Kareem. 30 years ago. First of all. Yes. Welcome, welcome to the pre-show. Welcome to the pre-show. God, you blow it every time. Welcome to the pre-show. So, 30 years ago. Yes. Um, two seminal albums were released. You had the uh, the debut album for Pearl Jam uh, was released. Ten. And you had the second album for Nirvana was released. Never mind. So I was listening to a podcast this afternoon. Um, the podcast is called Doctor and Comedian. And it features um, doctor by the name of Asif Doja. And uh, he's a neurologist. He's a pediatric neurologist as well as comedian Ali Hassan. And um, among other things, they were talking about these two albums. So I thought, let the two nerds talk about it. The comedy nerd and the medical nerd, but you and I, we're we're music aficionados. But nice. um, the two albums—is it fair to compare them? Do you have a favorite one? Is one more important than the other? What are your thoughts? Uh, Blood sugar, sex, magic. Huh? Blood sugar, sex, magic would be my favorite. Really. On one day by red hot have, red hot chili peppers. Yes. Yeah. On one day. One day. One, one evening. The single greatest day. Yeah. In rock. Rock and roll. The most iconic day in rock and roll. Okay. Impactful. If Impactful. I That's probably a better photo. But you had Nevermind. Uh huh. Bad Motorfinger. Yeah. And Red Hot Chili Peppers. Blood Sugar Sex Magic released on the same day. During that same window. Yes, you had ten. You had the Metallica album. You had Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Oh, geez. This was, this was all within, I believe, six weeks. This is all so, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. All within, I think it's a six-week window. I th- there's more to it than that, too. I can't, I can't remember who else offhand. But there was others, other classic albums that were released at that time. Yeah. So, so you need to look at it, I think, as, as, whole, as a whole during that period of time and the impact that that six weeks had on rock. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I mean, for me, for me, um, blood sugar, sex magic had the biggest influence on me as a musician, just the sound, the vibe, you know, red hot chili peppers. You had, you know, red hot chili peppers, freaky styly up with mofo party plan. Then they went into mother's milk and mother's milk. You started to hear, you started to hear something coming together and it peaked with blood sugar, sex magic or not peaked, but it, it blossomed right with blood sugar, sex magic. Like it really came, they came into their own with that album. So, so from a, from a personal music influence perspective, it's that from a, the world will never be the same again. I'd have to go back to metallic playing at Maple Leaf gardens. Um, it was a night of, playing tag on the roof of Maple Leaf Gardens because we were in the Red Path box and we found the door that went, the service door up to the roof of Maple Leaf Gardens. We were all running around the top of Maple Leaf Gardens during the Metallica show. Um, we found the the vents that, which I'm surprised we didn't fall through the vents and onto the crowd below us and die, but we found vents that were hidden and went to a secret little passage where it was the old camera, like back in the 40s of Maple Leaf Gardens, the big, uh, up in the big corners there. Um, and then, and then, uh, we ended up going to the opening of Phoenix opening night for the Phoenix. Um, we crashed the party there or whatever. Uh, we somebody got us in and on the way in, somebody handed us a tape and that's why I'm wearing my tape shirt today. Shirt. Shirt. Yeah. So when you asked me about the Mets, this is why I'm wearing this shirt today because I knew we were going to talk about this. So somebody handed up, handed us tapes. Uh, I remember getting up the next morning, leaving my girlfriend's place with my brother my brother was in high school at the time shouldn't have been out it's too young to be out with us doing all that stuff but he was with us and on the way home in the morning I had to rush him back to Whitby to get to school 
And I put my hand on my pocket and there was this tape and I pulled it out and Bozos went, all right, because the night was a little fuzzy. And uh, we're like, oh, right, the tape. And we put the tape in. No idea who it was. No idea what the band was. No idea what the album was. And it was Nirvana's Nevermind. And that's the moment I realized music was never going to be the same again. So if you were to ask me to pick between Nevermind and 10, even though I think of the time when I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers with the Smashing Pumpkins and with Pearl Jam, no name band open up. And I remember going, holy shit, we've never experienced this before in music. This guy is incredible. This band's incredible. Yeah. I will still say that Nevermind was the, and there's very few times that I have been able to do this with music that I listened to something for the first time and thought it's never going to be the same again. What was it about the sound? Was it the sound? Was it the angst in the lyrics? Everything. The spirit, the, 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 the songwriting, the angst, the, like, the, the freshness. It was a fresh, it wasn't necessarily new because there was grunge and there was that Seattle scene brewing up. But it was much like much like I was thinking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? Going into from Mother's Milk into Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Mm-hmm. I found Nirvana's Nevermind was the perfection of that sound coming out of Seattle. Wow. That's really interesting. Were you expecting that answer when you started that? I didn't know because you've so you've I've I've heard both of these stories. I've heard this story yeah, about the cassette, yeah. and I've also heard about you going to see uh your favorite band Smashing Pumpkins and uh yes. Pearl Jam opening up for them. Yes and, yes. and I've heard that story of, you know, Eddie Vedder jumping. I think what he, you said he had a broken arm, you think? Or I think he had a broken arm and he was climbing across, like he jumped up on the, the uh, speakers and then was climbing along the uh, yeah. the, the, the um, balcony at the uh, Masonic Temple. Yeah. And so I've heard both of those stories. So um, I was wondering which one you were going to uh, going to pick. I would I would have to I would have to put Nevermind ahead of 10 for me, hands down, even though 10 is an absolutely amazing album. Mm-hmm. And then I would put Nevermind up beside Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah. And if we're getting a bad motor figure, I mean, I, mean, I was listening to that just the other day when when it was the, the actual last Tuesday, was it or whatever it was? It was the actual 30th. Um What's up anyway, whatever day it was, that was the actual 30th anniversary. And it was just like, like just that, just one day to have those three albums come out. It's just mm-hmm. like, I got goosebumps. Like when, when, when has that ever happened? I mean, I'd be happy to, for somebody to point something out like that. Well, I'm sure, just, I'm sure albums have been released on the same day, but, but oh, like in retrospect, right? In retrospect, but three back, albums like that, like yeah. of that significance and stature, like mm-hmm. stature might not be the right word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Importance. Oh, for like sure. Importance of those three albums. What do you, you mentioned it and I had forgotten about it and I've got the two albums here. Use your illusion one and two, the audacity of a band to, and I can't remember, was this their second album after, um, after appetite for destruction? I can't remember if there was something in between there. I can't remember. Appetite um, for destruction. I will Lies. say is Lies another was album. number two. Was it lies? Oh, was number it? two. There was lies. I care. But appetite. Okay. So let's leave usual music. I, I just found it. I remember listening to Q at the time and it was like, how dare this band try to release a double album or two separate albums, really um, at at the same time. And just the songs and the music on those two albums are just amazing. But I would still put, I would still put appetite up against Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, any day. Appetite Appetite was another sure. album that I was, we'd just come back from tour. We were at a club. Yeah. Um, Welcome to the Jungle comes on. And I just went and stood in front of the speakers, like the loudest speakers possible. Yeah. And just stood there and took in that song for the first time. And that was another time where I'm like, oh my God, it's never going to be the same again. Yeah. I remember listening to, I never had that. I don't think I had that thought, but I remember we were coming back from a cross-country ski race and uh one of the guys had that on his i think sony walkman at the time maybe and uh was playing it in the back and i sh- i thought shit this is good stuff really really good stuff and yeah and i just remember i think i bought the cassette i think i have i don't think i have the album though 
Um, I immediately went out and bought the CD the next day. Like I had a business meeting yeah. or something downtown Toronto and I went to like tower records or whatever it was or Sam's or something. And I bought the CD and I listened to it from track one to the last track. And I was just like, Oh my God, this album is amazing. Yeah. 10 or appetite for destruction. Um, better debut album. What, who would you, what, which one would you pick? Wow. I'd have to go Appetite. As much as I love 10, I'd yeah. have to go Appetite on that one. Because again, it had that same impact to me that Nevermind did, which is yeah. just like, like things are different for me. Wow. Um, 30 years 10, ago. 10, wow. was a, a 10 was an amazing album. It's an amazing album. It really yeah. is. Like, like track one to the end is just uh, incredible. And again, it was a new sound and it, it's like, I think those boys did pretty well over time from what I hear. Still touring today. Yeah. yeah. Still touring today. Yep. Awesome, man. Well, that's the pre-show. That's the pre-show. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. How you doing, everybody? I'm John Arezzi, author of the new book, Matt Memories, My Wild Life in Pro Wrestling, Country Music, and With the Mets. And you're watching. Welcome to the music. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's great to have you, John. Really, uh, really appreciate you joining us here today. Long time, long time coming. Yes, show. yes. <laughs> we had forgotten that we booked this way back in, in the before times, maybe. But yeah. uh, thank, thank you for for coming on and uh, and joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, man. So, two of your roommates. One of them generally is beloved in this city, and one of them. Not so much, but you, you knew them, you know, both because they were your roommates back in your Mets days, yeah. uh, Gibby and uh, JP Ricciardi. Right. Um, has Gibby always been that cool hand, Luke, just relaxed type of guy that we seem to know, or is there a guy behind closed doors? John is uh, probably one of the uh, most salt of the earth people I've ever met. Uh, very, what you see is what you get. You know, he's an old school guy and he was kind of an old school guy back in the day. I met him in 1981. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been drafted for the New York Mets uh, in the same draft that they took uh, Daryl Strawberry and Billy Bean, who's, you know, became the guy who started Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And uh, my job with the Mets at the time was uh, head of public relations, sales, marketing, I, announcing. I did everything in the minor leagues. Yeah. And, uh, and we also looked for housing for the ballplayers. Uh, the house that I rented in, the, in Shelby, North Carolina, where the, uh, uh, the South Atlantic League was and where the Mets had a team uh the house i rented was 240 bucks a month and uh and it had three it was two bedrooms two bedroom house and we were you know guys were coming in and uh i knew that john was high up on the uh on the list and so i reached out and i was like hey listen why don't you uh you know why don't you hang out here and then he said i have a, a, a good friend jp Richardi. Uh, can he stay with us too? And I have another guy named Mike Hennessy who was also drafted. And I was like, yeah, all guys come in at 60 bucks each then. And we, you know, we have a, we have a house full of, of uh, ball players and, uh, and, and a lot of different types of personalities, John being the Texan that he was uh, JP, uh, a very, uh, uh, very Italian Catholic and Mike Hennessy, an Irish guy who was just a hellraiser. So <laughs> um, uh, I got, you know, I got the house first, and so I got one of the bedrooms for myself, and then the other guys had to share. Uh, like, they would flip a coin. One guy would take – we had a couch in the living room, so, you know, one guy had the bed, one guy had the couch, one guy had the floor, and they'd rotate. Uh, but Gibby was always a great individual, really good person. JP, 
uh, would always get on my case because if I dropped an F bomb, he'd say, you're not, wow. going to, you're not going to heaven if you keep talking like that. And Mike Hennessy was just a hellraiser. <laughs> so uh, uh, we had an interesting uh, dynamic in the, in the place and they would go on the road and they would never clean up after themselves. And, you know, mice would be scurrying around on the, on the plates in the, in the sink. So I'd be the person responsible for that, you know, but it was fun to, uh, to share that place with him. And it developed a, uh, now a 40 year friendship with John. It's amazing. Um, based on our, our summer together in Shelby, North Carolina for the Mets. That is amazing. And JP, yeah. So JP's yeah. Still a friend, but I'm closer to John than JP, and I'm working with John now professionally, which is a kind of a cool thing for me. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, uh, you know, since my book came out, uh, there have been opportunities for me, and and uh, there's a guy based in Toronto who has a company called Five Seven Films. His name is Stu Stone. I don't know if you know Stu or not. I've heard of his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a wonderful baseball documentary called Jack of All Trades about his father, who was in the baseball card business. And Stu uh, was also a story producer for a show called Dark Side of the Ring, uh, which is on Vice TV, and it talks about things that happen in the pro wrestling business that are kind of dark. So I, I work with that program and they uh, sent me to Florida to talk about the WWF steroid scandals of the mid nineties. And uh, here I am, Stu Stone is interviewing me uh, for the show. Uh, and I knew I recognized him because I saw his documentary and I loved Jack of all trades. I thought it was one of the best documentaries I'd seen. It was really heartwarming and, didn't recognize him uh, when he was interviewing me. But then when I left the set, I was like, that's Stu Stone, the guy who did that documentary. So I reached out. We started conversations and he read my book and he said, I think there is a, uh, a documentary or kind of a scripted series in your about your life because you had. Wow. You, you, you've done some incredible things. And and so we had started talking about it. And then when we came to the part of Gibby being my roommate. And him being from Toronto himself, he was like, Gibby was the roommate? And I was like, yeah. He goes, what is he doing? I was like, well, he's, um, you know, he's in, uh, he lives in Texas still, and he's a scout for the Braves. And you think he'd want to have someone do a documentary on his life? He's like an icon here. And I was like, well, I don't know. Let me call him up. You know, (laughs) I called up John. And I hadn't talked to John in about a year because his daughter was in country music and I opened some doors for her here in Nashville. Uh, and so anyway, I called John up and I was like, hey, John, how you doing? What are you doing? He goes, I'm sitting here planting trees in my front yard. <laughs> I was like, well, that, you know, I don't know if you're having fun or not, but would you be interested in talking to someone about a possible documentary on your life? And he was like, yeah, I, 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 I'd talk to someone. Uh, and and to to predate a couple of years previous when I was with John here in Nashville with his daughter and we're meeting, I was like, you should do a book, man. I don't want to write a book. I don't know what's what's there about my life story. So during that conversation with uh, about the documentary, I said, John, have you ever thought maybe now you may want to write a book? And he goes, you know what? I, I'd explore that. So I, I made a couple of calls to my publisher. And it hasn't been announced, you know, we haven't even signed a contract yet. But, you know, we, we've agreed in principle that John is going to have a, a deal to write a book. And Stu has now been on the on the Zooms with him two or three times a week getting his life story so he could put together a pitch deck to then pitch a documentary up up in Canada for John. So and, and John is like, well, man, you're doing all this stuff for me. Why don't we just kind of, you know, why don't you just kind of represent me? And uh, and so we have a working agreement with each other. Now. That's great. That's awesome. That's really you. You seem to have this, you know, reading reading your your book. You've got this sort of nature where you're just working with people and helping people. There's nothing signed or whatever, and then it just turns into something. Um, where where does that come from, John? I don't know. I'm getting crazy a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just had always wanted to help people. I mean. Uh, that was just part of my DNA, and I always wanted to be involved in exciting things. And uh, I just got off the phone with my nephew, and he's getting his master's degree. And I was like, you know, as long as you have fun fun with what you do, it's not a job. And I always wanted to do something out of the norm. 
I mean, when I was a little kid, I, I gravitated, you know, uh, as, a, as a seven-year-old, watched wrestling on TV. I fell in love with that. Uh, the Beatles came to the United States in 1964. I was there watching uh, Ed Sullivan uh, show when they appeared, and I fell in love with the Beatles. So that gave me a passion for music. And, and then I went to my first baseball game in 1966 with the New York Mets, and I fell in love with them. So those are the things I gravitated to, and those are the things I wanted to be involved with. Uh, professionally, even as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, there's just something inside me. I didn't want to live an ordinary life. And even though, you know, a lot of people say, and a lot of people look at my life and say, well, the guy never hit a grand slam. He's not a multimillionaire. He's not Uber, you know, like uh, elite living in a mansion. But I think I've lived a full life and I think I've helped a lot of people along the way. And it's, it's like, it's like, you, you, you you take chances, you take a leap of faith, like, you know, from one to the other. Is that like, is yeah. did that come from any family or is that just you? My family was um, uh, a working class family. You know, uh, my mom had her problems uh, with her uh, existing uh, mental, you know, she mm-hmm. had bipolar, you know, disease, and mm-hmm. that was challenging growing up. But um, most of the people in my family were just pretty much working people. You know, my dad uh, had several jobs. He got involved with some, you know, unsavory things too in his life uh, for a period of time. But for me, I just wanted to do something different. I just wanted mm-hmm. to kind of see the world, uh, escape maybe from, you know, the the household and the tension and the dysfunction that existed. Uh, And so, I mean, that's what I set my sights on. And I just kind of buried myself into this fantasy land of I'm going to be doing special things in my life. And and fortunately, I was able to uh, see a lot of that stuff that I wanted to see over the years. That's great. And I know, I know you mentioned in the book, I think you were talking about, your sister having some struggles and like, you know, mental health is just so, so I got goosebumps. It's just, you know, like talking about bipolar. I, I know somebody who was close to me that had bipolar, well, a couple of people, actually, if I think about it. And, uh, and uh, I mean, mental health is just so, yeah, it's, it's such a thing that so many people struggle with that they're not willing to, to talk about or no, deal with. I, mean, or, I, yeah. I got, I got heat from my family the ones that are still alive, it was like, why did you have to say that? You know, I was like, well, it's part of my story. And, and, hmm. uh, and I, and I, and I think that uh, I pay a lot of tribute to my older sister who had uh, these issues with drugs and, and mental illness, but uh, she was an inspiration to me. She's the one that turned me on to the Beatles and she's the one that uh, influenced my music. Uh, she, you know, when I was 13 years old, I mean, she'd be high and, and she'd say, you got to hear this. And she'd put headphones on my head and I'd hear, you know, uh, Billy Joel for the first time or Grand Funk Railroad or, you know, all of this incredible music in the 60s and 70s that she turned me on to. She was mm-hmm. a real hippie uh, and uh, she was a big influence on my life. And it was with great sadness that I saw her, uh, you know, her 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 journey. Uh, but she she gave birth to three incredible kids who are all doing fabulously and grandkids and and great grandchildren. But, you know, she passed away in 2009 and she was really good for the last uh, uh, few years of her life, the last five okay. or six years of her life and stabilized. But then she got lung cancer, mm. a chain smoker, and and she was gone uh, three months after the diagnosis. Her. So we lost her quickly when that happened in 2009. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Thank you. John, how, what was the switch going from baseball to wrestling? Why, why, why that, uh, that switch for you personally? Well, um, like I said, the three passions of my life, music, baseball, the uh, and, and, and wrestling. Um, when I was a kid, I mean, I fell in love with the New York Mets. I always wanted to work for the New York Mets. That was my dream. But I also mm-hmm. loved pro wrestling. So when I went into pro wrestling, really, if you look at it, at the age of 14, uh, starting a fan club for a wrestler, then bullshitting my way into a, a press pass at 16 and being at ringside for all the Madison Square Garden shows, 
Uh, and then I decided to go into the ring with no training and bullshitted my way into getting the shit kicked out of me by a couple of wrestlers. And then I got pulled from ringside as a photographer because I was just on TV wrestling. So you can't take pictures because you were just on the ring. You're out of here. So then I was like, all right. Uh, and I always wanted to work for the Mets. So I put wrestling in the rear view and uh, graduated from college. And I went to the baseball winter meetings. And again, uh, you know, calling up the owner of the team's hotel room because I couldn't get a meeting with him and talking to his wife and saying, he's got to meet with me. I will be so great for this team and organization. And my husband has got to meet with you. And and I got the job immediately. And so that brought me into baseball. And, uh, and then uh, that's where I met Patty Loveless in a nightclub one night mm-hmm. as, a, as a rock singer, not a country singer. And then I quit my job with the Mets to manage her. You know, and and, uh, then I went back into wrestling when that went away. It was like when things started to go south on me, like uh, like the wrestling career. All right. I have baseball. And when baseball, I have uh, music. And then when the music business started to tank, I was like, well, what else? I had to go back to wrestling and do something different than that. So it was this constant merry-go-round of these three different occupations. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you have fun. If I get tired of something, I don't mind turning the page and shutting the book and and just closing that chapter and moving on. You know, yeah. uh, that's one when, when I left music a year and a half ago, really, because I got I, I was aging out of artist development, working with younger artists. I couldn't relate to them anymore. Mm-hmm. I couldn't as a 60 something year old relate to a 20 year old kid trying to make it in music. Their values were different. They were too sensitive. It was a different dynamic. So I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And I found all my wrestling archives. I was like, well, maybe I'll go back to this where I started. It was interesting that you did go back because, you know, as I was reading, I don't know if it was somewhere in the chapters where you were just fed up of wrestling. It was like, it's over. Oh God, yes. I can't deal with it anymore. Right. It's not, it's not good for me. No. I was shocked that you went back into it, but there was something me there too. that was pulling you. <laughs> it's in your blood. Yeah. And believe me, what's going on with me today in wrestling, I'm like, you know, I'm looking for my exit again out of it because it's, it didn't change. Uh, it's just more people think that they're important than there was years ago. Yeah. Um, but it's like, uh, you know, but now I'm at the end of this kind of journey and I'm like, all right, I still got things to accomplish. And I'll, once I accomplish those things, then I'm getting out. Nice. Well, listen, before our listeners get sick and tired of us talking about wrestling and baseball, we, we, we are <laughs> oh, going to get to, go. <laughs> we are going to get to, exactly. We are going to get to music, but I wanted to, I wanted to tie, I wanted to ask this music question about baseball and wrestling. All right. Um, and, and I don't know if they're related or not, but this whole idea of walk-up music or entrance music, um, was there a time in both, both uh, sports, if we can call it that, that there was there was no entrance music or walk up music. There wasn't, not until really the Hulk Hogan era. Uh, mm. Guys would just walk out of the dressing room, and the fans would cheer or boo them. Yeah. There was only one wrestler I remember coming in to the music uh, with music, and that was probably 1971. It was a a, art, uh, a wrestler named Beautiful Bobby, long robe, blonde hair, and he would uh, pop in circumstance the Randy Savage song. Hmm. Uh, if you and he was the only one who was like, there's music with this guy. What's you know, what's that? But there was no music literally until uh, the Hulk Hogan area when I of the Tiger uh, was used for Hulk Hogan's entrance, and then everyone had music associated yeah. with them. What it, and and even today, like even today, there is you know, you watch WrestleManias, and mm-hmm. um, you know, more times than not, there, there's a band that plays. Live for some of the big stars. Yeah, it's it's huge. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, pretty prominent. I mean, uh, but what the WWE did as a company, I mean, uh, they didn't want to pay license fees. Mm. So Eye of the Tiger was used, but not on the home videos because they didn't want to pay the license fees. And then they started, uh, they created their own music department where they would have original music uh, written and composed for the different performers. Uh, now it's changing a little bit with their competitor, AEW out of Florida, uh, all elite wrestling owned by the Khan family. Uh, and they're doing really well. They just brought CM Punk in who is, uh, his theme song was always a uh, cult of personality. Yeah. So they licensed that song now and their performers are getting the opportunity to get 
mainstream songs back into wrestling through licensing because the people in Florida have a different mindset uh, and strategy than the WWE. The WWE is still, we're doing our own music, so we don't have to pay license fees, and we're going to own it. AEW is now, what's your favorite song? What do you want to come in to? They go ahead and license it. Right. And huh. the same thing with baseball. I mean, when you look yeah. at uh, everybody has a, a song now. Yeah. And and the and baseball, they don't mind paying the license fees. But Vince McMahon yeah. has always been Vince McMahon and he wants to own everything and he doesn't want to pay anybody anything. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You you there was a story you told um about Cindy Lauper and you know, she used wrestlers. I can't. I can't remember what song it was. Um, or maybe well, it was from the beginning. Well, it was. Like, well, girls just want to have fun. Girls want to have fun, and a few other few. Like, yeah. And she put wrestling into that. Uh, Captain Lou Albano. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they actually met on an airplane. Uh, a friend of mine who recently passed away. He was a performer out of New York, an oldies uh, disc jockey, named Mickey B, and uh, he was coming back to the United States from Puerto Rico and he gets on the plane and he sees uh, Captain Lou Albano there. And he's sitting next to this girl who was Cindy Lauper, who was actually in a band called Blue Angel at the time. And he was like, you know, and he's like, Hey, listen, you want to meet Captain Lou Albano? And he brings Captain Lou over. Lou was like, and he goes, Captain Lou, this is uh, Cindy Lauper. She's with this band Blue Angel. Maybe you guys can say hello to each other. And sure enough, they exchange numbers and then what happened? WrestleMania. That's Crazy. right. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when you meet somebody and you introduce someone to someone else. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's serendipitous. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. It was like wrestling music. It was all part of pop culture. It was amazing because MTV yeah. got involved because Cindy Lauper was the hottest female act at the time. She broke big. And for her to be involved with wrestling, it made it cool. So, mm-hmm. I mean, all of a sudden you have MTV involved and you have this culture shock of people like Andy Warhol and, you know, and, and uh, who's the guy uh, from Long Island with the, with the long, straggly, heavy metal guy. Um, I forgot his name. But anyway, all of a sudden it was cool to be at yeah. wrestling. And all the yeah. artists got involved. Then they did the yeah. rock and wrestling album. Then it was the rock and wrestling connection. And that yeah. launched right. for the biggest boom period in its history uh, in 1984 and 85. It was all over the place. Like everybody was watching. Absolutely. Wrestling. You couldn't get enough, uh, enough wrestling. Right. Uh, back in the day. Um, and even today with what um, WWE has their own channel now. Uh, they yeah, can the watch network. wrestling. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Watch it 24 seven. What are you, what are your thoughts on, on wrestling today versus, um, you know, back in the eighties? Uh, I'm kind of an old school guy. I mean, but, you know, here's the thing. People can trash the product today and say, oh, the guys are too acrobatic and there's no storylines and there's no defined good guys or bad guys. But it's evolution. Everything evolves. And what wrestling is today, it's now entering another boom period within the next six to 12 months. It started already. Because there's competition for the WWE right now with AEW. Mm-hmm. They're, they're assigning an amazing amount of talent. People are flocking to the TV sets now. And, and now it's kind of similar to what happened with the Monday Night Wars in the late set, the late 90s when WCW and WWE were battling every Monday night for ratings. And they were all, you know, outdoing each mm-hmm. other. It's starting to happen again. And you can see it. Uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens, New York, just sold out two nights for AEW Wrestling, made their New York debut. Wow. Yeah, two nights in a row. They they brought in Daniel Bryan, who was a big WWE superstar, is now with AEW. Uh, CM Punk, who had been out of wrestling for seven years, they convinced him to come back in AEW. And, and now all of a sudden, it's like, you can't get enough of it. And it's only going to lead to it. Uh, uh, a spectacular boom period that's starting right now. And it may last for two years, but it's, it's happening. All right. I might, I might go back to watch AEW. They're very, the product is really good. And they got the heritage announcers like Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone. Wow. Uh, They have some, most of the four horsemen in there now uh, as managers. 
Uh, Taz is there now. They just, uh, they're going to be signing this guy that just left WWE, Bray Wyatt, who was the fiend in the WWE. He's going to AEW. Uh, and the WWE, there's a lot of speculation that they're polishing it up now for sale. NBC Universal. Uh, that's why NBC Universal and the Peacock Network is now the WWE, the WWE licensed their network to NBC Universal for a billion dollars. So WWE is getting $200 million a year for five years just for the license of their network to be on the Peacock streaming network. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, so that's happening. And there's talks about Disney wanting to buy the WWE now. So I think it's going to be uh, – I think they're polishing up, and I think the WWE is going to be sold – uh, my own personal speculation, but there's a lot of innuendo and rumors out there within the next 12, 24 months, maybe. And I really believe whoever is going to buy it is going to put a theme park in Orlando as part of Universal Studios. And they'll have a WWE Museum, Hall of Fame, and maybe even attractions like the Undertaker ride, for example. Yeah, the Pile Driver. It's heading that way. <laughs> it's heading that way. That's really interesting. Greg, Greg will fire me if we keep on talking about wrestling. So let's, let's Greg, sorry. Let's, let's talk to me. Let's talk about me. I could talk wrestling all day. Yeah. Um, it's just a fascinating. Um, fascinating business. Yeah. Yeah. As is music. For sure. For sure. So dur- during the day, um, I'm in media sales. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, part of my portfolio is digital audio. Um, and invariably I'll talk to, um, people who've been in media for a while and they just uh, have fallen in love with radio, swear by radio. And I've always wondered why the, I don't get it. I don't understand. Yeah. You'll listen to some radio here and there. And then when I was reading your story about, you know, you weren't necessarily selling airtime, but you're building partnerships and I'm thinking, I think this is what um, all of these radio buyers are remembering. Uh, this time when you can, you know, speak to a radio station or a brand and actually create something rather than saying, just give me 30 second spot and we'll throw it on, uh, you know, a hundred times over the next couple of weeks sort of thing. Um, tell me about radio, uh, you, you know, you're, you're starting radio and, and you know, I know you you begged to get into it, but uh, you know, was there something about radio that appealed to you at that time? Well, I mean, when I, I went to college uh, for communications, and I always always had a love for radio. Even when I was a little kid, I I'd have a transistor radio, and I just listened to music all night long. Sometimes um, mm-hmm. I just loved it. I loved the genre. <clears throat> I loved. Uh, I love the immediacy of radio and the fact that it was local. But once I, you know, once I got my first radio job, I really was in the trenches on, on trying to figure out uh, as a salesperson, but I also was an announcer and a sportscaster, but I had to sell my own sponsors. And, and that's the way I got to be on the air. If I had a sponsor, uh, find a way to, to really, uh, to, to give them the value added, not just on buying a spot, but always look for ways to strategic partner with somebody and whether it's a third party spot or sponsor. But I started in local radio at a little mom and pop station and went on to other stations and bigger station. It wasn't until I really uh, went to New York city to work for a country station where I saw the value of, uh, of really uh, strategic partnerships uh, like tying in uh, companies like Sam Goody or Walmart uh, as we're bringing country artists into the New York station. So we could do these giveaways and meet and greets. And there was always something about that type of connection uh, by bringing parties together for mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. So that's how I did it. And it worked. And when you have success at something, you try to expound upon it. And, and then later on, when I moved to Nashville and worked for great American country television and the Jones radio networks, I was selling national. I was, and I was putting together these triangle ad campaigns that featured radio, television, and internet with value added contesting and as much value that I can give to the, the advertiser. And then your billing goes up, you know, it goes from hundred thousand to 200,000 to 500,000 to a million to 3 million. I mean, it just keeps growing because word spreads. If you're delivering for someone, especially in a little, not a little anymore, but a town like Nashville and the music business community, 
that was a great promotion you did with that, uh, with DreamWorks for Toby. How can we do something to launch Taylor Swift? You know, so those are the things that I got involved with pretty heavily. And it was a very creative time for me. And I was mm-hmm. given the ability to really almost work as an entrepreneur, uh, even though I worked for a corporation. Yeah. When you have the freedom, when you have that freedom, it, 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 it can be very, it could be very fulfilling. Yeah, no doubt. And and you mentioned, you know, tying in the three radio, television, and internet together. I mean, between that and artist representation, you've seen a lot of change. How have you, like, how have you felt that change has impacted positively or negatively as we've moved towards streaming? And is that part of why you made the decision to eventually get out of AR? Because yeah, it's, it's all changed. I mean, yeah. you know, once streaming came into play, uh, there was a different dynamic. Uh, the labels always made money. The artists never did. And, you know, mm-hmm. even streaming, it was kind of like everything got splintered. And it was, uh, and what really gave me a distaste for it was the fact that uh, artists were being signed based on what their social media and their streaming numbers were rather than air radio, you know, mm-hmm. other than other, other forms of artist development. I mean, yeah. of course it's evolution, but it just now it's like you could record a song in your living room at four o'clock <laughs> in the afternoon and you could have it up, uh, you could have it up and ready to go and, and release it by midnight. That's how quick it can turn around. But there's so many doing it. And then how do you, how do you, how do you identify who are the real artists that have this potential for long lasting success instead of like, a song that's a flash in the pan that could last for two weeks or three weeks and then it's gone. And these artists can't get a deal anyway. Uh, and so the whole dynamic of the music business has changed here in Nashville. It's not like, it's not like you could get a record deal anymore in the traditional ways. Uh, now they're all coming from the publishing companies. The publishing companies are doing yeah. the artist development, not the record companies. And my last venture in the music business was a was a crowdfunding platform. It's like if you have a fan base, let's fund your project and let us open the doors to Nashville for you. But that model wasn't embraced by the labels. What was, you, I, what was that company called again, John? Band Twango. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, here's a artist and 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 and, and you and you you raise money. If you, if your fans want to help you, this is the way to do it. You want mm-hmm. a video. And then what I do, let's say we fund a video for an artist. Then I'd call up CMT or the country music uh, channel and then make that introduction and try to get these videos played and try to move the, the, the needle. Uh, I, I had a very close connection to Spotify and uh, I'd sit with him every month and I'd play him all of the new band Twango artists. Can you give this one a shot? Can you give this one a shot? You know, and, uh, so it was really artist development in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. But once the pandemic hit, everything went to the shits anyway. Everything changed. And 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 I just dealing with the younger artists, too, was just kind of like, this is too much because you, <laughs> you can't break an artist. And ironically, I found one and, and I really would recommend this artist to anybody who's watching this program uh, as part of uh, because of my reputation in town, I was asked to judge a, a, a regional talent contest called Path to Fame. And it was sponsored by uh, uh, the Tourism Board of Tennessee and uh, Pigeon Forge, where Bollywood was. And we'd go to different towns to see almost like an American Idol thing. Mm-hmm. And there was this kid i never forget because she's becoming a star now. Her name is Sarah Kays, uh, K-A-Y-S. And here's this little waif with a ukulele. And she goes up there and she blows me away with a song that she wrote on this little ukulele. And she's a little shy kid. And, and uh, the other judges, because she didn't have a good story, didn't want to select her as one of the the winner. I wanted her to be the winner of the, of the competition. She was there with another kid who was really good as well, but, uh, but they wouldn't, um, they didn't want to sign her. They didn't want her to win, you know? Yeah. And so I gave her mother who was sitting, I said, here, here's my business card. 
because I knew the kid was moving to Nashville. I said, when she gets to Nashville, have her call me up. And uh, I helped her a little bit. I got her a couple of auditions here and there. But she was she was skyrocketing with all the songs that she was writing. And and at that time, I was losing my passion for it. But I knew she was going to be a star. Uh, and uh, and shortly thereafter, I mean, she uh, she started putting songs up on TikTok and she knew how to use the social media platforms. And she had a fabulous producer associated with her. And now she's on Electra Records and she was on The Late Show and she's now on tour. And uh, I'm so proud of her because she's a fabulous artist. And, and she writes about uh, she writes about the things that teenage girls are going through with uh, body shaming. And she's you know, she she's not confident in her body and she wears sweaters and she's writing about real things that resonate to kids. And I'm, you know, I'm 60 something years old, but when I hear her, I was like, she's going to be touching kids, her age and maybe helping them. Sarah Kays, K-A-Y-S, Sarah, S-A-R-A. Check her out. She's everywhere. Yeah. I've already uh, pulled up her website. Very interesting. Yeah. She's amazing. Amazing writer. How, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, John. No, I, I know I've always had an ability to identify extraordinary talent for whatever reason <laughs> i should have been an a and r guy yeah for sure well listen how how would you how would you break an artist today is, is it the same thing is it just relationships and you know getting people on you know whether it's on cmt or well there's so much noise out there i mean i wouldn't even know Today, you know, the only true artist development in the traditional way that I did, and we almost broke the act, except for the label couldn't get terrestrial radio, believe in her, was Sarah Darling. I mean, she was a star. And um, I, I did the right things, marketing her, getting the relationships built with the Grand Ole Opry and CMT and the City of Nashville Tourism Board and getting sponsors involved with her. We had everything going for us. Everything going for us, uh, except for terrestrial airplay, because the label at the time wouldn't put up the necessary promotion dollars to make sure it happened. Mm. And then when I bring Kelsey Ballerini in, uh, I discovered her in a little pizza place and, you know, helped her along the way. And then they realized, I mean, to play this game, you got to put up a lot of money to make sure it happens. So they invested quite a bit of money in her after I got fired and uh, and she's become one of the hottest stars in country music and, and in pop music now. She's kind of segueing over to the pop genre, but uh, uh, I wouldn't know how to do it today. I think there's too much noise out there and there's too, too many different ways to do so many different things. Uh, yeah. You hope to think that the cream rises to the top, but I mean, you got to have a good team behind you with a strategic plan and quite honestly, people that are much younger than I. <laughs> it's it's I interesting because it. we, we talk to people, to musicians right now, particularly during COVID. You mentioned how quickly everything's gone to pot. It's like, you know, it's the whole idea of the perfect team behind you has just, I don't know, shattered, morphed. Like it's just, it's gone kaboom since we've he- headed into COVID. In what way? I mean, are, it's like, is it one person that they're relying on or that, you know, what, it's, what's it's, in your assessment? Yeah, it's 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 certainly from the from what we've been hearing from the perspective of, you know, everybody's had to shift. So maybe that's a better way to put it in, in shifting. Some people have realized who 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 knows how to shift and do it for them. And then some people have sort of been left in the the wind and having to do it themselves. And we've talked to a lot of young musicians that have gone, I just had to roll up my sleeves and learn, you know, promotion and, and how to build a website and, 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 and because everything got blown up during COVID. Yeah. It's almost a, it's almost a do it yourself mentality, you know, and maybe that's, you know, the, you know, one of the things around punk music, right? It was it was more of a do-it-yourself sort of thing, figure everything out. Um, yeah, like you like you said, John. You know, things sort of change and evolve, and yeah. you know, so who knows? This this everything old is new again. It yeah, sound, I mean, sounds different. That's all. It, it is. I mean, even back, you know, thinking out of the box in non in non traditional ways. I mean, I could go back to two thousand and six when Scott Borchetta uh, from Big Machine. 
uh, came into our office and wanted to discuss a strategy to launch this 16-year-old kid named Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, what can we do that's different and special to help introduce this kid, Taylor Swift, to uh, the, 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 the nation? Because she hadn't gotten any national TV exposure. She just got she was still in the studio recording her first album. So uh, our creative team came up with a, um, uh, a really interesting concept called Shortcuts. We cut like little mini movies of her and we brought in sponsors, Oscar Mayer and Dairy Queen. And, uh, you know, it started, it was a three minute, it, it would follow a music video leading into a commercial. So and, and, and the viewer thought it was part of programming. You know, welcome to GAC Shortcuts. And you see Taylor Swift. Hi, I'm Taylor Swift, and I'm 16 years old, and I go to Hendersonville High School, and I want to be a country music star. And she's in the studio recording the song Tim McGraw, and she's barefooted, and she's wearing an Oscar Mayer T-shirt. And then, you know, then it would end, and then we'd play the Oscar Mayer commercial right after that. And then after the next commercial break, we'd have part two of Shortcuts, where she'd be now at a cookout with her friends, Growing up Oscar Mayer hot dogs, and then she goes to Dairy Queen. But that was our way of introducing her. And we did 12 of these with her. Uh, and it really helped get her started in uh, with a national TV presence because GAC was her seen in, I don't know, 40 or 50 million homes at the time. We had really good ratings. But those are the types of things back in the day. You come up with these special little ways to introduce someone. Mm-hmm. And then I just took that and, and I, I, I started these things called um, – Get to know, uh, get to know your favorite artist, and we take them behind the scenes, and and we introduce them that way. Uh, there were just different ways in the television market and uh, the television space at that time with a with a company like GAC to be able to do these creative things. Hmm. What do you think of Taylor Swift and what she's doing now? Sort of re-recording her albums oh, and yeah. taking she, ownership. I guess she's got no choice, right? You know, because she doesn't own the original masters and she, you know, I, I, it, it's a very contentious lawsuits that have been back and forth. And so she's doing what she feel in her heart is is right for her to do to mm-hmm. own her her intellectual properties in a different recording, perhaps. So, you know, I, I have I, I just think Taylor Swift is a um, incredibly brilliant genius. Uh, and she was when she was 16. I mean, she really, she really was. I mean, she mm-hmm. really was cognizant of, of what she was doing and very methodical in, in her, in her, um, in her career path. I was always impressed with her. Yeah. There's someone that sort of started in, in country before there was Pandora and Spotify and has, you know, really, you know, understood the trends and what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, not is, is just not a, an amazing musician and songwriter, but um, understands the game, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And she's been through the mill too. I mean, you know, you see documentaries on her and I mean, it's just, you know, you, you get so big, you get so, so successful and so big and it, it's like, then you're sheltered and you're mm. like a prisoner, you know, and she's kind of, she reminds me of like that poor, you know, I just watched the Britney Spears documentary last night, the second part. Oh my goodness. Especially because I knew the people that are her business managers. I oh my goodness. No idea. I mean, uh, cause they were Sarah Darling's business managers. I work with Tri TriStar. Uh, and, uh, and I'm, I'm like watching it last night and I was like, holy shit. I know them. Holy shit. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. That's another crazy story. That's for sure. Oh, my God. I mean, this, you know, you got to look at that's why that's the evil part of the music business. You know, those are the people who control you and almost make you a prisoner. Hmm. You know, if you can't get your own iPhone and you have everything you're doing monitored. I mean, I would advise everyone to watch that. It's on uh, Hulu, I think. Uh that Britney Spears, it's called Britney Spears. Uh, it's not uncovered. I forgot what the name was. Just Britney Spears Hulu. The the second part of the story, this documentary on her trials and tribulations. And believe me, I, Britney Spears, uh, you know, I, 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 
I watched her. I thought she was crazy and all this other stuff like everybody else did when she shaved her head. And what she had to go through as an artist is incredible. When you hear the backstory about the conservatorship and the and the way she was treated, That's I nuts. mean, anyone can look at that now and say, God, you pray for this girl and you hope that she can somehow, when this conservatorship ends and she's free to make her own decisions, and she may be damaged permanently, you don't know, but you pray that somehow she can she can be free. And yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I couldn't, it, it devastated me to see what this girl went through. Absolutely. So, John, you're still in Nashville, right? Yes, I am. So we've got this... Um, you know, part part of our program, we have a segment called Lost Venues. Okay. Um, Greg and I have seen it here in Toronto, and this, you know, probably this story can be told anywhere. But I'm really curious about Nashville. You know, everyone knows the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, there, there's a there's a number of uh, iconic venues uh, in Nashville. I'm wondering if there's a place, John, that you remember over the years that was an amazing place, maybe a personal favorite of yours. That you know, for some reason, doesn't exist anymore. Oh, um, I'm, I'm wondering if if there's a venue like that in Nashville that you can tell us a little bit about. There is a place. Um, it was almost like a little supper club, and I forgot the name of it because it was right downtown. It was really a cool place, and I'd seen artists like uh, Susie Boggess play there, and Mary Chapin Carpenter, and. Uh, uh, but it's not there any longer, but it was such a cool, it was a cool vibe and it was a great place to experience music. I mean, uh, you know, you have venues that open and shut all the time. I mean, now everything is so damn commercial downtown Nashville. You, I won't even go down there if you paid me a hundred dollars uh, wow. uh, for each bar I go into. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think there are places like the listening room where singer songwriters can go and play. That's a, a wonderful venue. Uh, the Bluebird Cafe is, still has this mystique, and it's really cool. And ninety people to a hundred people can see the best songwriters ever. And if you talk, you get the shh card put on your table. Uh, you know, uh, but the City Winery is another a cool place today. The, the, the Ryman Auditorium, though, there's nothing. That's like right. It. That's, That's right. some other church, and that place is without a doubt um, the place to go see music in in Nashville, Tennessee is the Ryman Auditorium because it's it there's nothing like it acoustically incredible uh the vibe the church pews the tradition and the ghosts people say mm. mm-hmm. so it's it's still a place it's still a, it's still music city i uh music city has has a different ring to me these days mm. and years ago Nashville is not the same. Mm-hmm. Nashville is a tourist attraction. Nashville is a jungle on the streets of Nashville these days. Nashville is like Times Square. Ah. And there's drunks and there's crime. I mean, you know, I hate to talk bad about it because I love the city so much. It had such an incredible charm for so many years. But, I mean, it grew. And uh, now, you know, you have to look for these hot spots that are cool because it's all touristy. You have these uh, alcohol trucks and vans that load people up on the, on, you know, and drive through the city drinking and people are partying. And it's just like, it's just really, it's, to me, it's personally decadent. I hear what you're saying. So I, I don't go downtown anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I know if I if I ever make my way to Nashville for uh, for a week or so, well, I guess I, t- won't do, <laughs> I won't do business with the city of Nashville anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> touch base. I'll touch base with you, and you let me know where I should go for for some good local music. Yeah, um, that that's for sure. Well, the thing about the town, the musicians still come here. Yeah, yeah, and they still come here. An average of a hundred to two hundred new musicians come here a month. Wow. Looking to break here, but it's 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 not the same. I mean, it's just, you know, I can't tell you when the last time an A&R guy went into a club downtown and signed an artist. I mean, hmm. 25, 30 years, maybe. Wow. That's interesting. So, so John, one of the things we like to ask our guests um, before we wrap things up is, um, I know you mentioned about Sarah, so we have to check out Sarah. 
you know, what, what's in your earbuds lately? What else are you listening to that people should be checking out? Kaylee Shore. I always gravitate to the females, if you know. If you know. <laughs> but Kaylee Shore is uh, someone who, uh, you know, started out a little bit more uh, as a country artist, and now she's gone into more of a pop uh, realm. She does a great podcast I listen to every week. Uh, but her, her, her writing and her authenticity and her, uh, her spilling her guts in her music, she's really cool. And I listened to her. And she's part of something called Song Suffragettes that plays in, uh, at the listening room every Monday night, promoted by a guy named Todd Cassidy, who's a really, really good guy and uh, somebody I worked with when he was managing Scotty McCreary. And, uh, but Todd started this music, Suffragettes, which brings the w- women together, women singer-songwriters, every Monday night to sing in the round. And there's a lot of incredible talent that he books. So I would say that is what I'm listening to. Katie Shore, I listen to. Uh, Sarah Kays, I'm listening to. I mean, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying not to lose touch with the music. Mm -hmm. I kind of discover cool things, but there's so much noise. You don't know where to look anymore. You know, you really don't. And I'm so far removed from the Nashville music community, the music scene, that um, I wouldn't know. Because I don't listen to country music anymore. Mm-hmm. Once, once bro country started, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, the Florida Georgia line and the rapping and this and that. And I was like, I'm not into this no more. I can't listen to it anymore. <laughs> I'm not listening to it. You know, I always tried to, to find talent that was good and maybe more traditional uh, than what was going on. Because that... What what happened to it, in my opinion, is like everything sounded the same after that started in the in the mid two thousands. I mean, that was kind of like really it was like two thousand ten, eleven. Um, then it just kind of changed. Right? And I'm like, this all sounds like it does sound like uh, the stuff I have a passion for. Interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting. You mentioned though about like the the rap influence into country and stuff. And you, earlier you mentioned cult of personality, and to me. That you know, living color was the the convergence of funk and metal, and it was just like a goosebump. My favorite band, yeah, well, one of my favorite bands Maybe. ever. So it's it's interesting as music evolves, and you're right. Like we've got this sound now with the rap and the country. Yeah, but it's evolution, right? Yeah. It's an evolution, yeah. and it's me aging out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. I'm an old I'm an old fucking fart now. <laughs> you know. So what I what I dug years ago, I still trying to find yeah. that stuff, yeah, yeah. and it's not there no more. It's gone. Yeah. Except Understood. for on, you know, except for you like on your streaming services, and you say I can play anything I want. And when I take yeah. my walk every day around town in Franklin, Tennessee, I'm listening to the '60s and '70s. I'm listening to the stuff I grew up on, mm. and then I have my favorite country artists, like uh, from back in the day, like Daryl Worley and and uh, and Colin Ray, and and guys who were more traditionalists, and Garth Brooks even. Uh, but I can't I can't identify with today's artists, and that's just because of my demographic. I think. Yeah, there you go. Before we let you go, John, um, you, you have to tell us your Donald Trump story. <laughs> yeah i mean you fired the guy so i i, I think well, I, that, guess, I guess we could go there i don't yeah. want to get into politics no 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 yeah blood pressure will start to go away. <laughs> <laughs> um the donald trump story um uh, is as follows i mean my sister uh who i love dearly my nephew we were all she was living here in nashville she didn't really, she was kind of like Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Minnie, if you ever saw that movie. <laughs> we didn't blend here in the South. She was a New Yorker, an Italian New Yorker. So she wanted to get back home and she didn't have really the finances to do that. And uh, and uh, they had an open audition for a show called Deal or No Deal with Howie Mandel here in Nashville. And I was like, my sister probably would do good on that show. So I told her, I said, there's an open audition for Deal or No Deal. I don't watch that show. You go do it. I was like, no, no, no. You do it because you're going to be all these Southern people there. Maybe they'll like you because you're not from here. So sure enough, she shows up and she gets picked for the show. Season premiere. The theme is to bring Donna back to New York. And, uh, And when we go to California for the taping and the show starts, 
And, you know, the suitcase is open if you ever saw the show. And, you're, and you know, then Howie calls the banker to get an offer to stop the game or continue it. And the banker was always this person secluded in this booth. On this show, season premiere, there was a special guest banker. And it was revealed to be Donald Trump from The Apprentice. And everyone goes crazy. My sister's, you know, oh, my God, da, 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 da. she loved Donald Trump. And and, uh, and so anyway, I mean, he was playing hardball on the offers to her. I didn't think he was being fair. So I asked Howie Mandel, as I was one of the helpers helping my sister make strategic decisions. And I asked Howie, I said, can I say a couple words to Mr. Trump? Uh, go right ahead. And I said, you're fired. Just like <laughs> fired him on national TV because um, that was his shtick. But I was the only yeah. the second person ever to fire Donald Trump. On hey, here you go. You so, and uh, Vince McMahon have fired Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Awesome. John, this this has been awesome. Um, next time I start a, a wrestling podcast or if uh, if Greg allows me, we'll we'll get you back on it and we'll just <laughs> we'll just talk wrestling. Well, pick up Matt Memories if you can want to read more about all this crazy stuff I've done. It's available everywhere you buy your books. Matt your books. There you go. Matt Memories. Find it on uh, Amazon. Uh, if you're here in Canada, you can find it on Indigo. Audible. Uh, Audible as well. Us. Who reads it on Audible? Is that you? Nice. Yeah, excellent. I read it, yeah. It's got to nice. do that. It's a fun book. It's a fun read. John, if people are searching you online, they want to find out more about what you're doing, um, where, where can they go? Uh, Twitter, at John Arezzi. Instagram, at John Arezzi. Um, MattMemories.com is my website. And uh, that's basically the main ones. And Facebook, you can find me there, too. It's John Arezzi's Matt Memories. Perfect. John, thank you so much for joining us. This has been yes, a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, guys.